Hey everyone, welcome back or welcome. If it's your first episode here at Nightmare Now, I'm your host, Eric Byrne. And on this show, we talk about all the crazy cannibalism, creepy crawly catastrophes, cataclysms from the Cretaceous period onward. I don't really have a whole lot to report personally, and I think that's probably good for the health of the show, because I'm getting to a point where I've got people listening who don't directly know me, which is awesome. I love you guys. So I feel like a lot of you are less interested in the menial goings-ons of my life day-to-day, week-to-week. So I'll save the personal announcements to stuff that's big. So I don't really have a whole lot going on right now. I do have one thing I want to touch on real quick, and I owe it all to you guys, because a year ago yesterday, I released the very first trailer for Nightmare Now. Since then, we've grown the show to thousands of listens. We've got listeners in 25 countries now, which is amazing. And yeah, I just, I owe it all to you guys. I wouldn't keep doing this if nobody was listening. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I guess that'll wrap up the quick sappy thank you portion of the episode. So I'm glad to have you all along for the ride. If you have an idea for an episode, if you want to send me hate mail, if you just want to get in touch and say hi, check us out on all the socials. And you can find the links to all those at nightmarenow.com, along with the whole back catalog and links to whatever your preferred podcasting platform is. I think it is a perfect time to jump right into the episode, and you're going to want to pour yourself a big glass of Jack Daniels. I actually had Jack Daniels written down as the alternative to the topic, but I don't think Jack Daniels is great right now either, because I just saw a news article that they have some horrifying whiskey fungus in their production line that stopped their expansion. So I don't know, go Jim Beam or uh, whatever whiskey you like, but you're probably going to want to drink for this one. And it's probably not going to be Jameson. Unless you're a psychopath, then it might be subliminal advertising. I don't know what's what anymore. Our tale begins in 1780 when a 40-year-old fellow by the name of John Jameson founded an eponymous little distillery in Ireland, making blended Irish whiskey still sold today. I mean, of course it's going to be Irish whiskey if it's in Ireland. Interestingly enough, he was a Freemason. It doesn't really have any bearing on this episode in particular, but I feel like that keeps coming up as kind of a tertiary relationship in all of these episodes. All these people are Freemasons. I just think it's a little bit weird. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but uh, maybe we'll get into that. Not today, though. You know what? Maybe I should have saved this episode for a week or two and (laughs) done it on St. Paddy's Day because it's about the heir to an Irish whiskey fortune, but I'm sure we can find some other horrifying tale fueled by alcohol or the Irish. So we'll see what happens next week or the week after, whenever St. Patrick's Day is. So eventually his whiskey distillery was taken over by John Jameson Jr. Following John Jameson Jr., there was John Jameson III. And then it gets slightly less fun because we move on to his son, Robert. And, you know, you could have gone for the fourth. Come on, go for it. But after Robert, so on and so forth... Uh, the heirs to the whiskey fortune continued making whiskey. But there could only be one of them doing it at a time. And so the other heirs to this whiskey fortune got up to a whole lot of other stuff. Actually, I don't know what they got up to. I'm just focusing on one person that was that was John Jameson Jr.'s son. So the original John Jameson, his grandson. And I'm pretty sure he had a lot of grandsons because John Jameson the first 
the very first John Jameson had, I think, eight children, and all of them being Irish probably had a bunch more children. So anyway, he had a grandchild by the name of James Jameson. What a fun name. It reminds me of the great Swedish scholar, Eric Erikson. James Jameson's middle name was Sligo. Sligo, which is kind of silly in itself. James Sligo Jameson. James Sligo Jameson? Sligo? Isn't Sligo a Pokemon? Anyway, Sligo is actually a town or a province in Ireland. I think it, he was, he had his middle name named after where he was born. But James had a ton of money to burn being the heir to this whiskey fortune. And he had the heart of an adventurer. He tagged along various expeditions to South America, the Pacific Islands, and Africa. The dude was really living a cool-ass life compared to other Irishmen that mostly sat around on the island. And, I don't know, was Guinness invented back then? You know, you got Guinness, potatoes, and you got <laughs> Irish songs, which I love all of those things. But I don't know how it stacks up to hunting lions or trekking through the jungle to find ancient ruins and stuff so he had a pretty cool go of things and he ended up giving a bunch of those big game trophies to the british museum which is kind of fun given how much we talked about the british museum last week and how they had the unlucky mummy that wasn't really a mummy it was just the lid of a mummy it's a whole thing check out last week's episode all these things are are connected in some weird web It'll be fun to, like, map that out one day. The Nightmare Now cinematic universe. So, in January of 1887, he joined an expedition led by one Henry Morton Stanley, a Welsh-American explorer. It was on this expedition that James would face terrible trials, and in today's political climate, he would have been cancelled for sure. I might get cancelled just for airing this fucking episode. So James Jameson had to apply against a few hundred other naturalists or Africa enthusiasts just to have the position of being an officer on this expedition. The fact that he submitted his application with a 1,000 pound, and that's not weight, it's the Great British Pound currency, a 1,000 pound tip with his application certainly helped sweeten the deal. That would have been 168,000 pounds in today's economy, or about $200,000. And I thought fucking $50 was a lot to send for a college application. I imagine the 200 grand really might have greased the wheels a little bit on his application there. So he got the spot. He was one of the officers in the Emin Pasha Relief Expedition, which was kind of to provide supplies to a besieged diplomat in the Congo. So they were kind of helping out King Leopold II from Belgium. They were doing some other stuff for Britain. It was kind of like a multifaceted operation that you know when you send somebody for a beer run and you're like, hey, on your way back, can you like stop and grab Domino's or something? It, it was the 1880s equivalent of that where you would go on a journey to the dark continent and go conquer this giant swath of land. While you're there, bring back some diamonds, some slaves. So one, of the, one part of it is that they were ordered by King Leopold II, who was somewhat of a controversial historical figure in the Congo. Most of my knowledge of the Congo comes from one line of We Didn't Start the Fire and the terrible slash awesome movie with the evil white gorillas and Tim Curry 
and I think there was a cyborg gorilla in there. I think I talked about this in the Mokili and Bembe episode, so check that out. But even a cursory inspection of that history shows it's really not great. The short version of the throwaway line, Belgians in the Congo, basically boils down to about 10 million people died trying to get rubber out of trees because good old Leo decided that the Congo was his, the whole area of the Congo, an area in which he never stepped foot in and I think was something like 20 times the size of his, his like kingdom in Belgium. So he's just like, this is mine now. And there was, there was a lot of that going around at the time. So that exploitation continued until the 1950s and 60s, when the Belgians finally gave up the Congo to the people of the Congo, which then became the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So they elected a president and a prime minister. And almost immediately, Belgium was kind of like, Ooh, we actually really wanted those resources that we left over there. So I'm going to have to call some of my friends and take that stuff back. And um, the CIA basically immediately assassinated the, uh, the prime minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You Americans thought that we were going to get out of this one. No such luck. Even in the 1880s. I guess it wasn't the fucking CIA at that point. Because that was... That was after the OSS in World War One, But basically the equivalent of the CIA back then. No, wait, no, this was in the 1950s. So yeah, it was the CIA. Maybe we'll get into the whole Belgians in the Congo thing another time. Because I've touched on it on two episodes now. So after that side tangent, James Jameson tagged along on this trip. And there's a lot more to that expedition. But the part we're focused on was in the May of 1888 in the small village of Riba Riba. Arriba. Anyway, in Riba Riba, they were having a festival that was said to end in the consumption of human flesh. Hmm. Jameson basically thought that they were full of shit, and he was like, Can I see, my good man? Um, one of the other people on the expedition, he was uh, the translator, I think, reportedly replied, Give me a bit of cloth and we'll see. Big Jafar vibes, like the guy from last episode. So Jameson calls his bluff and produces six handkerchiefs for <laughs> the tribesmen there. It's kind of funny that the dude has six handkerchiefs to spare. He probably had a hundred just like pouring out of every pocket of his outfit. That just seems a very British way of paying for things. And this is where it gets really fucking gruesome. The wheels of the evil handkerchief cloth trade were already grinding. After this exchange, the dancing comes to a halt, and a young slave girl is brought forward. It is explained that she is the captive from another tribe that they are at war with. I guess six napkins really goes a long fucking way in 1888. Now, for the squeamish among you, you may want to skip ahead a few minutes. Basically, the girl's about to get killed and eaten, and it's... it's not good. Spoiler alert, but I feel like that's a fair kind of trigger warning. So that's all you're gonna miss if you skip ahead. So feel free to do that. I'll be here when you get back. This is your last chance. Five... Four, three, two, one. Action! Oh boy. So this is a direct quote from the 1890 newspaper, the London Times, reporting on the incident. And this is kind of how this whole story got out to the world. 
The girl was tied to a tree, says Faran, the natives sharpening their knives the while. One of them stabbed her twice in the belly. She did not scream, but knew what would happen, looking to the right and left for help. When stabbed, she fell dead. The natives cut pieces from her body. Jameson, in the meantime, made rough sketches of the horrible scenes. Then we all returned to the child's house. I don't know what the fuck they're talking about with the child's house. I the child was a slave from a rival tribe. Why would she have a house? None of this makes sense. Jameson afterward went to his tent where he finished his sketches in watercolors. There were six of them all neatly done. The first sketch of the girl was... As she was led to the tree, the second showed her stabbed, with the blood gushing from the wounds. The third showed her dissected. The fourth, fifth, and sixth showed men carrying off various parts of the body to cook and eat. Fuck. Alright, if you're back from your time skip, you really didn't miss anything but a bunch of disgusting, gruesome details. And that's kind of when the gossip started. It's kind of when the cannibalism started, if you will. Jameson was part of a well-to-do whiskey magnate family that was ripe for being thrown into a salacious expose of news stories. Couple that with a morbid curiosity that the general public in Britain and the Western world at large had with the dark continent. This one had papers absolutely flying off the shelves. And the crux of the story that the pretty boy whiskey heir had bought a slave for a pittance just to watch her get eaten. And this is kind of where all the fact-checking comes in. Everyone was like, well, did he buy a slave girl to watch her get eaten? And there's some debate on the semantics of that, which I'll get to in a minute, but there's no fucking debate about the girl getting killed and eaten, which seems to be the more important part here, doesn't it? That happened with pretty much 99% certainty. I feel like we're arguing about the wrong thing with all these um actuallys here. Yeah, a girl got killed and eaten. Unbelievably fucked up. But all people seemed to care about was whether or not this rich person paid for it to happen. And, I don't know, says a lot about society. So after the horrifying event, the group pressed on with their expedition. So this is going back to what was actually happening in 1888. This, remember, this news story didn't come out until 1890. They split into two groups, with Jameson leading the rear group and another officer leading that forward group. That second officer was killed by natives, and the Belgian authorities caught the guy that did it. He was a fellow by the name of Sanga. And so Senga was executed about the exact same time when Jameson's group arrived in the town behind the first group, who now had no leader and sort of had either moved on or joined with his group. It's not really clear. I didn't focus on the whole history of the expedition. There's a book on all of this if if you're interested in it. And it's, it's mostly about kind of a biography of Henry Morton Stanley. And there's a famous line that he does where he's like Dr. Livingstone, I presume, where he finds this doctor out in the jungle. Apparently that's a famous line. I don't actually know that story. Some of you guys might, but that's the same guy, if you, if you do know what I'm talking about. But either way, this was an extremely chaotic expedition 
And after they left the town, after the execution of Sangha, they headed down the River Congo for the Bangala River Station. And they traveled for about a week and a half, I think it was like 10 days, through sickly bogs, mires, and along the river, through snakes, mosquitoes, other horrible insects, and possibly giant ancient relic sauropods. Check out the Mokili Mbembe episode. And all kinds of other horrible shit in the Congolese jungle. Maybe those weird white gorillas that were attacking Tim Curry and the other cyborg gorilla. It was likely due to the mosquitoes that Jameson fell ill on the last leg of that river trip. He got a hematuric fever, which was a complication from malaria, which is passed on by mosquitoes. Yeah, mosquitoes are not good animals. On August 17th, they actually made it to the Bangalore River Station after a series of jungle hijinks and ordeals, and after breathing a sigh of relief, he finally made it to that next town. James Jameson promptly died of his illnesses. He was only 31 years old. And, you know, he had a pretty good fucking run. In the 1880s, he saw most of the continents in the world, got to see lions, rhinoceros, got to see a girl get eaten, which wasn't great he called it the most horrifying thing that he would ever have to behold and he really didn't have any time left to prove himself wrong on that point but he was buried in an unmarked grave deep in the jungle and if that isn't a hero's send-off i don't know what is the problem for jameson that is ethel jameson his now widow was that the dude being dead number one didn't care about the salacious news coverage, and he also had no way to defend himself or his family from the slanderous claims of the press on account of being buried in a shallow grave in the jungle. So if we take a closer look at that newspaper story from 1890, that's where things kind of get a little bit murky. I mean, things mostly get murky in the disgusting jungle rivers filled with disease-carrying parasites. But from a narrative standpoint, things get murky in the news reporting of the 1880s. For the most part, most of these claims were based on an affidavit, which is basically you sign a paper saying that, yeah, this is definitely true, bro, for real, 100. And a guy named Assad Faran wrote this affidavit saying that the story was true, and saying that he specifically, James Jameson specifically asked to buy a slave girl to watch her get eaten. Which, for the record, I don't honestly believe is what happened. I believe that he saw this grisly event occur. I don't think that that was anyone's real intent with any of the Westerners' intent with this exchange of handkerchiefs. I think he was more calling bullshit and then got called on his calling the bluff. Part of the affidavit also claims a short description of an orgy that Jameson was an interested observer, but not a participant. So that's an interesting little thing there. Um, Again, I don't believe this Assad Faran guy because of this stuff later. Jameson's last letter to his wife is basically just whatever Faran says, it's a lie and don't let it get out to the press. And if it gets out to the press... Please do anything in your power to stop it. Which honestly does not help his case that much. 
imagine you're fighting with your sibling and you, and you go in after a big fight and I don't know, you've both been hitting each other and you, you get there first and you're like, whatever, whatever she says is a lie. It's not real. Uh, I never did that. That's not true. It's like, does that really make you any less culpable? If anything, it adds more suspicion. And that's kind of what he was doing. So it's not really a great denial. But like, at the same time, you can't say nothing. And it's one its one of those like catch-22s where, you know, you say, I did not pay for a slave girl to get eaten in front of me. But also, if you say that, that's exactly what somebody would say who bought a slave girl to watch her get eaten in front of you. Yeah, just being any part of this process was kind of not good from a uh, character standpoint. But what's interesting and often doesn't get reported in this story is that around the same time, like almost immediately after this story came out, there was an immediate retraction from Assad Farhan, which was, quote, emphatic. He was very emphatic about his uh, retraction. Basically, Ferran had been fired by this guy Bartletot, I think, was one of the other officers on the on the crew, and he got fired for some reason. I don't know. Maybe he was making up more bullshit. But he got fired from this, and he was like, "I was part of this famous expedition," and he went to the London Times and signed this story to just make everybody look like a complete lunatic. And what mostly got reported on was the rich boy that everybody knew that had this ridiculous story about watching a girl get eaten and then sketched. So about the sketches, that part is fucked up. And like I said earlier, Jameson said that this was the most horrifying sight he would ever behold in his entire life. And I I don't think he lied there, but he also sketched it out. And one thing that he insists on, and I don't know if this is in a letter or one of his buddies that survived the expedition said this, but he apparently didn't. One of the allegations is actually that he was like, oh, no, you know, hold on, hold on before you, you cut off her head or whatever. Let me, let me get a good sketch of this scene and then you guys can continue. Apparently he wasn't editing and storyboarding this thing out, which I guess is good. <laughs> I mean, you're not really operating from a great starting point here. So sure. So he denied storyboarding the thing out. In fact, he denied sketching the thing out at all until he got back to his tent where he was tormented by visions of it and he had to sketch it out artistically in order to kind of, I don't know, get it out of his head. You know, sometimes I feel that way. If I if I need to like write something down, I'll take whatever time I need and, and either sketch it out or write it down or something like that. Getting it down on the page kind of is a, I don't know, a ritual of getting something out of your brain. I mean, it's still going to be in there but there's a catharsis in it so I, I get that what i don't get is allegedly painting it in watercolors afterwards so you you sketch out this horrific scene across a veritable fucking comic book of sketches and and jameson was a naturalist and back then that was basically a glorified cartoonist you would go around you would sketch animals you would sketch nature scenes and shit and that was that was doing science back then so he was probably a pretty good artist. And so he goes back and he goes through this catharsis of getting this horrible image out of his head. And he's like, you know what it needs? A splash of color. I just need to find the exact 
crimson shade of red that was spewing forth from the girl. I bet in his palette he probably had that mummy brown ground up watercolor paint that I was talking about last week. Yeah, I'm kind of undecided on this one. Like, I don't think he fully purchased a girl to watch her killed and eaten. I, I emphatically disagree with that. I believe he saw it. I believe he was more interested than he let on. And I believe it's kind of like, you know, I'm already here. And then you got to believe that there's some element of like, mm, I'm glad it's not me. If you're seeing people lead out other human beings to slaughter for food, I don't know. So I think it is a somewhat complicated social situation he found himself in. But the watercolor thing is definitely fucked up. So, obviously, after that, he died within two weeks, so he he doesn't have anything to say about his story. The rest of his fortune went back to his wife and back to uh, another buddy of his in Ireland or England or something who donated it to a museum. But basically, James Jameson's reputation was forever tarnished by this cannibalism uh, scandal. And it's sad because he was... Um, he was also, like, the first European to sketch this certain bird in South America. You know, not a whole lot of people would have remembered him for that. But it's not a bad thing to be remembered for, you know? You found this certain type of buzzard, and you named it the Jameson Whiskey Bird. But yeah, that, w that w probably would have been a preferable legacy to showing up in memes that just say... Yeah, the fella that uh, invented Jameson whiskey, his his son uh, bought, purchased a young girl to watch her be eaten by savages. So he's kind of relegated to this macabre footnote in history, which there's ups and downs to that. That's more than can be said for a lot of us. There's something to be said for being remembered which is kind of why I'm doing this hugely egotistical venture of <laughs> recording my own voice for my children and grandchildren to hear all my <laughs> horrible jokes <laughs> hundreds of years from now when it's all downloaded into one massive brain cloud when we're all stuck in the metaverse being tortured for <laughs> a period of a thousand years. So that's pretty much the story. That's... uh. It definitely happened whether... The, the only dispute with this is whether it was intentionally the girl was purchased for the explicit purpose of watching a human slaughter, which is not really a great place to hinge an argument on. You know, you want to have a more solid defense than that, generally speaking. There's a couple of recreations of the drawings, which are pretty fucked up, and I will link those in the show notes this weekend. I lost like 50 tabs on both of the mummy episodes because my laptop died over the weekend and for some reason I couldn't recover them. So this weekend I'm going to take a day, put together the show notes for all three of those episodes, have them all up. But man, what up story, huh? I like my episodes to have a lesson or at least a takeaway of some kind, you know? So I guess don't eat people. Don't pay to have people be eaten in front of you. And more practically speaking, I guess don't call people's bluffs all the time. If somebody says that they're going to kill and eat a young girl in front of you, if you do X, maybe just don't do X. Maybe just let him take the L, let him have that one. He doesn't need to prove it to you. If I run into somebody that says he's going to eat a person and only 
if I don't believe him and I pay him six handkerchiefs to do it. I'm just gonna be like, you know what? I didn't hear that. Plus, plausible deniability. Have a nice day. I never saw you. Bear that in mind, always. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Once again, I'm so pumped that it has been a whole year of doing this show. People seem to like what I'm doing and I'm excited to keep doing it. I feel like the first year is always gonna be the hardest one. So that's gonna be pretty much out of the way. I think on the 13th is when the very first episode released, the Champwa Tiger one. I owe it all to you guys. You know what's coming next. It's a sweet dreams, but we all know it's only gonna be nightmares now. Have a great year.